Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is called Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. A very special guest today, Ms. Amy Ginsberg Bickell, the widow of the great Theodore Bickell, presently director of the Theodore Bickell Legacy Project, journalist, writer, a little bit of everything and everything well. Welcome to Seldom Said, Amy. Thank you, Robert. I'm very honored and happy to be with you today. Again, thank you so much. I wonder if we could start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place. Of course, although I will have to make it shorter than it would be otherwise because I've moved around so much and I've been have had so many different hats on my head that it does make for a rather long story. But I am American-born, um, lived in Israel for a long time, and then lived in India for 15 years as a foreign correspondent. I've been a journalist for a long time, um, ever since my army days in the Israeli army. Uh, every, everybody has to go to the army in Israel, so that's nothing special. But I became a journalist there for their radio station, and I've continued with that work ever since. Um, lived in India, like I said, for 15 years as the really only Israeli correspondent in India, so I was honored to report all news out of that um, continent, and then met my late husband in 2012, and uh, we knew right away that it was the real deal. Um, So I left India uh, after 15 years, a place I really loved very deeply, and moved here to Los Angeles, where I am now. And... um, very sadly lost Theo much sooner than anybody would have liked. He was ill and uh, passed away in 2000, in the middle of 2015. And, um, and here I am in LA, uh, and he's gone. And so to make myself useful, and also because uh, I believe in it with all of my heart, I founded the Theodore Bikel Legacy Project, which has been a way to keep Theo with us just a little bit longer, his great legacy of using music and using his art to uh, commit and recommit to a better world and to his ideals. And uh, Lord knows there's been a lot to do. Um, I guess there always is, but it feels almost overwhelming in the last several years. And so there's a lot of work, and and we do it. Theodore Bikel seemed able to assimilate any time, any place, anyhow, any culture. You seem to have either absorbed or inherently have the same attribute. Is that something you thoroughly enjoy, diversity, difference? You mean with each other or in general? In general, speaking of uh, perspectives of of society and of individual people living in India, being Israeli. Absolutely. Maybe because as a child I was moved around so much, uh, you know, to, to, to different countries and to different places in those countries. Maybe it you know started as a child and then I just never quit. But I do, um, uh, one of the main um, interests and joys for me in life is embracing cultures and people and points of view and challenging myself to widen my perspective and widen my point of view, which is certainly something that happens when you let yourself uh, be immersed in, 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 in other cultures with other people. 
and um, you start to see, um, you know, a 360-degree view of the world, which is something that I really enjoy, and certainly something that Theo enjoyed very much. And indeed, I would say that is something that brought us closer to each other because we enjoyed that both. To Theo, Theo liked to say he did. He sang in 22 languages and 23 languages, um, and then he would say, "I only." I only speak seven of them well, but I can sing in 23 of them. It's incredible. He seemed to be a Renaissance man in the middle of the 21st century. What do you attribute most of his eclectic interests in? Well, first of all, there's just an innate personality, right? Two children can be born in the same family, and you know, one of them... Uh, happy in a small circle, and one of them goes out to see the world. So, I mean, he was an only child. That's not a good example. But well, one of them is innate personality. But also, um, you know, he was raised uh, uh, until he was 14 in Vienna. That was one culture. And then uh, after they fled the Nazis, he was in Palestine in a completely different environment, Palestine as it was called before it became Israel. And kibbutz environment, he went from this urban, you know, this this beautiful central city of Vienna to living on a kibbutz, a, a very early kibbutz. And then off to the stages of London, where he very quickly was starring with Vivian Lee in Streetcar Named Desire, although he was an understudy, but he got to do it a few nights um, with Sir Laurence Olivier as his director. Peter Ustinov, The Love of the Four Colonels, he had a leading role. So then he was very much on stage, pals with Princess Margaret. So that was a whole other, you know, culture to, to, to take on. Moved to uh, the United States in the late 50s after he uh, had a role in The African Queen and came here um, to star in a show uh, that never really took off. But soon after that uh, was offered the lead in... Um, the Sound of Music, and so he was the original Captain Von Trapp. So he just kept being exposed and exposed to things. But like I said at the beginning, I don't think he would have necessarily um, allowed himself to be exposed if he wasn't interested in doing that in the first place. Now, as far as his interest, that was a, a tour through his cultures, but a tour through his interests. So he was brought up in a family where um, a socialist, with a socialist father, who taught him that taking care of others and caring for the world, caring for workers, was of utmost importance. He took that very seriously. Um, his father told him from the very beginning that no matter how much success he might have or might not have in any field, the most important things are our work for our fellow humans, um, that that's what's important in life. The rest of it is, you know, we do it, but working for justice is what's important. So that he had from childhood. He loved to act. He loved to sing. He he intended to be a professional actor, but then um, but he's saying all the time without stop. And Jack Holtzman from Electra Records heard him singing at a party and said, "Look, you're a folk singer. I'm going to record you." And that career happened almost by accident. That he became such a well-known singer and folk singer. Um, so that was a you know that was a little tour through all of the hats of Theodore Bickel. Marvelous. I do remember as a young man seeing the Democratic Convention, unfortunately, uh, after Senator Robert Kennedy had been assassinated, and they began singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And in the back, Theodore Bickel just stood out. He was singing loudly, a burly man, and he just stood out. 
Do you have snapshot memories of Theodore? In a sense, when you close your eyes and think for a moment, what pops into your mind? Well, you know, I'm his, I'm, he was my husband, so he's in front of my eyes, I would say, 24-7. And I can't even really fall asleep without listening to his to interviews and of him so that I can hear his voice. So I would say, first of all, it's his voice more than the appearance. It's his voice that a lot of people have told me uh, the kind of in- effect his voice had on them. Certainly on, on me, his voice made me feel like everything was going to be okay. It still makes me feel like everything is going to be okay when I listen to it. That deep, rich resonance, which is so full of goodness. And visually, I knew him already as an old man. So for me personally, the pictures are this you know beautiful, beautiful face with the crowned by this beautiful white hair and um, his his smile and the twinkle in his eye that really never went out until the end. But after he passed away, I had the immense honor and privilege of going through his all of his papers and all of his photos from all of his life that were stored in warehouses in different places in the country. They were just kind of stored there for for looking at it some other time, according to maybe where he had lived or where an office had been, and then the storage space was taken and his papers were put in. And I gathered all of that. And in the first year after my husband passed away, I more than a year, about a year and a half, I spent every day going through these tens of thousands of papers and correspondence and photographs and pieced together his life even more than I had known because Theo did tell me quite a bit about his life, but I pieced together even more as I went through all of these documents. Correspondences starting in the early 50s, late, no, starting in the in 4046, there was papers going back from 1946 all the way till today, and he used to type on a typewriter and keep a carbon copy of everything he typed, and so I had both sides of every correspondence with theater directors and with friends from the kibbutz and with old friends from Vienna and his father sending over news and, and, and girlfriends and uh, you know, professional and as president of Actors' Equity, which he was the president of that union, of the Actors' Union, for about 30 years. So his minutes and his notes and his speeches and loads of photographs that went together with everything else. And so I was in the particular particularly strange situation of as time went by since his death, I knew him deeper and better and, 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 and fell in love with him more as time went by from being immersed in these tens of thousands of, 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 of memory mementos. And so now I have more snapshots in my mind than I even did in reality when he was alive. I have snapshots in my mind of the young Theodore Bakel dashing across Fifth Avenue on his first day in New York, writing to his girlfriend in Paris about what it felt like to be walking among the skyscrapers. And I have snapshots in my head of Theo playing his guitar on the kibbutz while he's supposed to be working out in the fields, but he's playing hooky and playing the guitar or, you know, and onwards into his life. You know, speaking at you know, American Jewish Congress dinners when he's 50 years old or 60 years old, 
with that full head of black hair. You're going to have to stop me because I could go on now for, you know, 10, 20 hours. But I did become, you know, the greatest living expert on Theodore Bikel over those years. And now those papers, by the way, are at UCLA. UCLA uh, Special Collections has Theo's um, papers. Uh, They'll be available to the public soon, as soon as they're done uh, doing digitizing or whatever they, they do to that. So I hope. I hope my hands, I, I, I felt myself uh, letting myself get carried away on a river of nostalgia. So let's, let's come back to the present. No, you painted a lovely picture. It's, uh, it's marvelous being part of that, to being loved like that, and to being able to love like that. I'm curious, uh, there are performers who just contend that they can do what they do Paul Robeson saying, I, I just sing. Why do you ask me? I sing. Woody Guthrie saying the same thing. Knowing your husband, do you believe that there are such things as natural talents? Well, I mean, yes, I have to believe that there are natural talents from looking around the world and, and watching, you know, how some people do what they do um, compared to how other people do what they do. Um, Theo was a natural talent. He also worked hard at what he did. Um, He sang and played his guitar daily for dozens and dozens of years. He went to parties every night and played without stop. He was the last one to leave. Um, With his craft, with his acting, he he worked at that uh, very much. But also it's true that Talent, when we break down talent, so there's an ability maybe inside of a body, you know, fingers that work better or, you know, my small motor coordination, which is naturally better. But there's a soul behind that, or as I believe. And there's something that a soul is saying through the art of the person who's producing that art and what that soul is saying could be of any order of things and any nature of things and it could be high and it could be medium and it could be low and so I think when we are profoundly moved by someone's art we are being profoundly moved by what is moving through them when they create and I don't know if that's talent or some kind of a connection to something universal that sits at the center of all of us. Helene Wiesel had once inferred that within every man or woman there is that inherent spirit of God, we might call it talent. Do you feel that can be taught? I live in a part of the country, our audience does as well, where the first things to be butchered in budgets are the arts. There's the assumption that uh, Mathematics, of course, with its inherent wealth and worth, is more important than the arts. Do you feel in point of fact that everyone has that spark of talent and it can be taught? Well, I believe that all of us, I mean, now we're getting into a very different conversation. I'm not sure how far to go into my spiritual beliefs and if that's relevant to our conversation, but I was asked, so I will answer that. You know, of course, I believe that at the 
center of all of us, every man and woman, and I would even go farther and talk about other species as well, but now we're talking about men and women that at at the heart of us is a is a spirit which is connected to all other spirits that is part and parcel of all spirits, the way a drop of water is part of the ocean, and that we all possess an inherent ability to love and to connect to beauty and to eternal truths, but that obviously for all kinds of reasons, people go through life either exhibiting that ability differently or blocked from that ability for reasons that, you know, this program would not be long enough to to discuss, but birth and and pre-birth and, you know, but so not everyone is as is able to access that love or access that those eternal truths. May I ask a favor of you? That's beautifully put. It's rather poetic. I'd like to just segue into our first station break and return with a thought, if I may. The program is seldom set. My name is Robert. You're listening to a podcast from LIU Studios. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this show on your podcast app of choice. For more of our programs or to support LIU Studios, visit WCWP.org. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert and a very special guest today, Ms. Amy Theodore Bickell, the widow of Theodore Bickell and the director of the Theodore Bickell Legacy Project. I would imagine that uh, it is either stimulating or tiresome to deal with peripheries. So I apologize if in some way we pursued that in the last question I put to you about talent. But there is that inherent quality that's so hard to put their finger on, people who can naturally do something and teaches. And Theodore struck me as an incredible teacher was he someone who specialized in finding that inherent crude jewel and polishing it? You mean in other people? In other people, yes. I know that the actors that he worked with will now say to me how generous he was, how incredibly generous he was with his time in helping them um, work on their own roles. And they tell me how unusual that was. I wasn't there, unfortunately, to see it. But they say, like, for example, in the Fiddler Touring Company, he was he played Tevye 2,200 times uh, on many national tours of, of Fiddler. And they would be in one city or in another city, and the actors would tell me that usually the leads, they keep to themselves, they eat at better restaurants, they stay in their suite, you know, while the rest of the cast... Uh, more, you know, have stayed, stayed together separately, but that Theo was always accessible, that his door was always open for them, that he spent time with them. He never went off on his own to, you know, to have, you know, to, to dine separately. He, he, he dined with them so that he could share with them his secrets of the craft and his love of the craft. I do hear that often from singers, and then he also loved to lecture on 
topics that had to do with Yiddish and Yiddish poets and Yiddish writers, which was a little bit unusual that on top of everything else that he was doing, he added that into his repertoire and went into classrooms or seminars and just, you know, taught, taught, taught these other topics that he cared so much about. So that comes to mind when you ask me about if he loved to teach or to pass things on. And then besides that, just in this, his choice of music, he was choosing folk music from all around the world to sing, mostly because he loved it, but also because he wanted to be able to impart um, that, those, that cultural knowledge to others. As a journalist, have you ever considered, Amy, as to how you would have interviewed Theodore? Yes. Yes, I have. And not only I have, but if I let myself think about it, which I normally don't let myself think about it, I become uh, quite full of regret that I never had the foresight, excuse me, or hearing the little, uh, the the sounds of my uh, cell phone, you'll, you'll have to excuse me, the notification sound. Um, I become full of regret that I never had the foresight to uh, get out a tape recorder um, and just interview him, uh, talk and interview him. We spoke so much anyway all the time. Our life was just really one long conversation. But if I would have taken out a cassette recorder or however they call it nowadays, a tape recorder, um, I would have that and be able to work with it and build things from it. And I, I, I am regretful, quite regretful that I did not do that. But I think in our personal life, the fact that I am a, a professional interviewer um, and spent my career interviewing people, I, that just become has become my style. And I interview my friends. I interviewed Theo just as part of life. My kids complain about that sometimes, I have to say. They say, well, this isn't an interview. Can't, don't you know how to just talk? So, yes, an interviewer by profession I am. Do you keep a diary? I don't. I know one is supposed to, especially people of high culture, but I don't. Theo and I kept something together in the year before he died. We, 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 we wrote something t- together, but no, I, I do not have that habit. I think that because I write so much professionally, I don't feel so turned on by the idea of continuing to write for myself, although I am aware of the benefits of doing so. I've interviewed a number of Holocaust survivors, and I think to some degree I emotionally survived by going for that proverbial long walk when the conversation is over. The idea of a children's book dealing with the impetus and the events of the Holocaust strikes one initially as some sort of moral impossibility, and yet it was done by you and Theodore. What are the genesis of the book, and what gave you the idea to do something so extraordinary? First of all, thank you for the compliment. Um, the book is receiving uh, incredible amounts of uh, support. Um, the critics are saying similar things to what you're saying, and I had not really expected that, um, although one hopes a book will be well-received. But that specific comment that you made that you know, one would think it would be impossible to teach children about the Holocaust, and yet it was done so well, 
and how did you do it? My first answer is that I did it by having no idea that that's what I was setting out to do. And I think often that might be the case, that you get a result when that's not really what you'd set your mind to. The genesis of the book is that um, the editor and publisher of Moment Magazine, which is a Jewish magazine out of uh, Washington, D.C., a good uh, current affairs magazine, a very high-quality one, together with um, NPR, had a show, had a project called Hanukkah Light, and um, they asked, I believe, five or six um, public people to write a story, a short story for Hanukkah that would be read on NPR during Hanukkah. So maybe it was eight people for all eight nights. I just thought about that right now. Maybe it was eight, and they read one every day. And then those stories were published in Moment magazine. So Theo was asked to write one of those stories, and um, he said okay. And uh, he came out of his office uh, some hours later with a story um, that was about his childhood in Vienna. Um, it was a little bit surprising that that's what he did. It wasn't was not a specifically Hanukkah story, but. It was not surprising because as Theo became older and closer to his last days, he thought about his childhood more and more and spoke about it, not only every day, but something would come up about his childhood, maybe even several times a day. And he thought about his parents so often and and started to remember things from conversations with them that he had not remembered before. So I was not that surprised when that was the story that he wrote. Um, we worked on it together on the story. He, what he came out with was a beautiful rough draft, but then we worked on it together. I certainly contributed a lot to that story and it was read on NPR and it was published in Moment magazine. It was very short. It was much shorter than the central story that you see in the book today because I've, I've doubled or tripled, maybe doubled that, that, in that text in the central story. Um, and last year, uh, I was approached by, by Moment Magazine that has meanwhile become an imprint of a beautiful publishing house called Mandel Vilar. And Moment Magazine developed an imprint in Mandel Vilar. And so they approached me to turn that little story into a book. And um, I'm not sure if they had intended for me to add as much as I did, but I had been thinking of making a book out of that story anyway. And the rest just happened very naturally, very Simply, when I say simply, I don't mean that I wasn't using my craft, but it flowed through without any blocks. And I I took the central story that he had written and doubled that, so I added a lot to make it a longer story. And I I kept Theo's Theo's voice for that. And then in my voice, wrote um, an introduction and wrote an afterwards, and then knew from the beginning that I wanted the book to keep this very real way about it, that life is bitter and sweet, and that the story that Theo is telling is heartbreaking, you know, about a boy in a city that he adores, that he loves, that he feels so comfortable in, that he that it's a foregone conclusion that his time will come to take his place in this city that's full of music and theater and intellectuals debating in every coffee shop. Um, he's too young for that now, but he'll grow up and that will be his life. It's the life that he wanted. 
That's what he saw for himself. And that life was denied uh, because his neighbors became enemies overnight. Not even enemies, because enemies implies two people that are enemies with each other. He was no one's enemy, but his neighbors and his teachers and the principal of his school and even the innkeeper that used to give him an extra dumpling um, in his soup so that he would be a big, strong boy one day. All of these people became people that were um, happy for him to be destroyed and for his family to be destroyed, and he had to escape. And, of course, this is a heartbreaking story. But he also went on to have a beautiful life, and that is also true. And the culture that he came from, even though when we think about it, about European Jewry, we are sad, we think of victims, we think of of almost being annihilated, we think of what happened in World War II, but I want us to also know that we were also beautiful with with a lot of beauty in our culture, even though there was wretchedness way before World War II, of course. There was 2,000 years that were also full of wretchedness, but there was beauty. We were we had a language. Our mothers sang to us in, in, in Yiddish lullabies, and, 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 and our parents made love in Yiddish, and, 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 and it was a life full of beauty. And I, I wanted to just put all of that in there, There's the bitter, there's the sweet, and that's what makes life. And I I wasn't thinking about teaching the Holocaust to children. Not at all, not once. I don't think Theo was thinking in those terms either. We just wanted to tell this story. And I was a little bit surprised when immediately when the book came out, people started talking about it in terms of, you know, oh, what a wonderful way to be teaching the Holocaust to children. It's not what I had intended. But now that that's what came out, that is, I take that very seriously. And on my book tour, um, I'm on a book tour now and I'm speaking in many places. I have added that in there somehow because I see that that is how people respond to the book. And so I do talk about what it means teaching the Holocaust to children, talking about the Holocaust or other traumas to children. And um, what I say about that, if I, if you don't mind that I continue this thought, Certainly not. is that is that while we all have a profound instinct to surround our children with love and and happy thoughts and you know the adorableness of barnyard animals, you know, and 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 that we're friends with each other and we teach multiculturalism and. And, and, and we want our children to feel comfortable in the world that they live in. We want them to feel optimistic. I know as a parent, when my kids were small, how difficult it was for me to decide to share bad news with them about a war, possibly. Or, you know, I come from Israel, there's a lot of bad news, and how to share that. So even though I, I, I know that, I also know that we're living in a world that feels increasingly divorced from facts and from reality. And I think the truth is, and I learned this from my own two children, that children thrive when they know the truth about reality. And when I say the truth, I don't mean the whole wretched truth. I don't mean we want to traumatize them with facts that are beyond their ability to digest. 
although we know children all over the world, even right now, even at this moment, are living in realities that are so wretched we can't even begin to imagine, and they they survive. But again, I'm not talking about unloading traumatic fact onto small children, although this book anyway is 10 or 12 and up, not really suitable for younger than that. But I think that children are strong. I think they want to know the truth. I think they want to know what's happening, and they want to know how to deal with it. I think it makes them feel safe and secure when their adults say to them, look, these are things that happen. This is true. And this is the response that we can have to it. And we're here, and we're here for your questions. We're here for your questions. We're here for your pain. We're here to help you work this out. And um, I think that's healthy and healthier than, or at least healthy alongside fantastical animal friends and, you know, all of the things that we tend to fill our children's lives with. Do you feel, Amy, then, that we live in a rather overly pragmatic age? This idea of deriving love from pain, it seems unique. It seems almost heavenly or celestial. Theodore seemed to naturally have it. Do you share that feeling? I share that feeling. I've had quite a bit of trauma in my childhood as well. I think that's something else that we recognize in each other, that nothing stopped us, that the trauma did not, you know, cut us down at our knees, you know. Not that I am in any way, when I say that, um, belittling or discounting the fact that that's a gift given to us, that it's not because of anything that we did and other people didn't know how to do, or that other people suffering from trauma, they just laid down and, and, and we had some special abilities. It's a gift. It's, it's something that you're born with. It's, it's certainly nothing that I would take credit for. I don't think it's anything that Theo would take credit for. It's, 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 it's God-given. But yes, both of us shared that an ability to be joyful um, and comfortable and loving in a world after having seen it at its worst. Amy, um, we're 30 seconds away from our second break. The indication of a marvelous interview is when the time goes by so quickly and I'm looking at the clock and it's running from me. So I'm going to be forced to take the second break and then return as quickly as possible and re-engage this marvelous conversation. Okay, thank you very much, and talk some more about the book. I shall. I most certainly shall. My name is Robert, and the program is Seldom Said. Rome once fell, and all great civilizations do. Is America falling? Could we be doing more? Some say it's because we have stopped focusing on learning and understanding what it means to be a good citizen. That's what this podcast is all about. If Civics is Dead, what happens next? Subscribe to Civics is Dead on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice, or visit wcwp.org slash civicsisdead. 
This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. Uh, unfortunately, this is the last segment of uh, what has been one of the finer interviews we've had the privilege of conducting. Our guest is Ms. Amy Ginsberg Bickell, director of the Theodore Bickell Legacy Project and the author of City of Light, a marvelous book that one would recommend to anyone with eyes to see and a mind to hear. Can you tell us about the derivation of that title, Amy, City of Light? Where did it come from? All I can say is that when Theo uh, wrote uh, that short story that we spoke about earlier, that is at the heart of this book, it came ready with the title. It, it represents the boy experiencing this wondrous city um, that has light coming from every window um, that lights up the stones of the buildings. Anyone that's been to Vienna can get that picture in their mind. Um, And also the light coming from the theater houses, which Theo was taken from time to time to the theater by his parents and loved so much. The, The coffee shops with the beautiful cakes on the gleaming cake stands. And all of this had him feeling like he was living in a city that was all light, But of course, and I don't know if Theo meant this um, consciously, but of course artists artists don't always consciously think about what they're doing, and yet the meaning is there. When we say the city of light, it foreshadows the terrible darkness that befell the city on, first of all, the Anschluss, of course, when the Nazis marched into town unopposed by the local population, to the contrary, welcomed gleefully and jubilantly by the local population of of Vienna, of Austria. Of course, there were exceptions, but the majority. And then, of course, November 9th, Kristallnacht, when the city, the synagogues of the city, the Jewish businesses were destroyed, broken, the glass was shattered. And in some way you could say, or in many ways you could say, that beautiful life, that beautiful city that Theo remembered, the light, was extinguished in many ways, maybe forever, although the book talks about the sincere attempt of the Austrians to make right in some ways, to reckon with what happened, and to find ways to be sure that would never happen again. So that, that, that brings us to the you know, to Leonard Cohen, and, you know, there's a light through everything, there's a crack through everything that the light shines through, or or through the the beautiful Japanese art of taking something that's been broken and putting it together somehow, and what you have is broken but beautiful. So, so the title, The City of Light, has all of that in there somehow, the light of the city, but then the light that went out, and, and, and can it come back? Can something that's been broken be mended. And we talk about that in the book. And when I talk in front of children, we talk about that as well. Or even with adults, can something that's been broken be mended? In Judaism, we definitely talk about that very deeply. Um, Tikkun, something being repaired, um, that what's been broken can be repaired. And and when we say tikkun olam, so many people, Jewish and not Jewish, know that phrase, tikkun olam, the mending of the world. Well, we're not saying making the world a better place. That would be a different Hebrew phrase. Many people think tikkun olam means making the world better. It does mean making the world better, but the words are specific. The mending of the world, 
the mending of the world. So we know that we live in a world that's broken. We know that. We we wake up in the morning, we walk into the street, and we see that we live in a world that's not what we hoped for, and certainly not an ideal that we have in our minds of, of paradise, of an original paradise, if not historical paradise, at least at the origins of our very existence. We have a longing, we have a knowledge that there is some perfection or some perfect love at the heart, but it's broken. We see it as broken, and but we can fix it. We, it will be different than it maybe was. It, it won't be the same. It'll never be the same, but, but we can strive to fix it. So all of that comes to me when you ask me what's inside the title of The City of Light. Thank you for that question, by the way. That was fun to try to unpack that. I appreciate the thought. It would remind one that, as the Buddhists say, I had uh, recently a conversation with Dalai Lama graced with that, but the premise that uh, a blemish reminds us that we're not God. There's a beauty in there. Very, absolutely, there is a beauty in there. That we're not God, and therefore, there's work to be done. You know, not that we're not God only in the way of, you know, to keep our modesty about us, which is always very important. You know, without humility, very little love and beauty can shine through. So not only that humility, so that the love and beauty can shine through, but also to remind us that though in some ways or in some certain certain existential way, we're perfect as we are, but at this moment, at this time, in this body, there's still, there's still a lot what to do. There is a statement, and allow me to segue for a moment, if I may, that Theodore made in our last interview toward the end of our conversation. He said, you have to know, Robert, that once a refugee, always a refugee. Did you encounter that in conversation with him, and can you discuss what he meant? I used to look at Theo sometimes because he said that, and he meant it, and he felt it. And I sometimes would catch myself looking at him, you know, at the center of some social gathering. You can imagine, of course, any social gathering he was the center of, also because people wanted him to be, and also he felt himself to be so. So singing and talking and and joking and laughing. He was full of jokes. He was the world's, you know, most prolific joke teller. He had a joke for every situation. And um, and enjoying and conversing and debating politically and with his guitar and singing and looking so at home anywhere, everywhere. And I would look at him and remind myself as a way to stay very close to him and in deep intimacy with him that inside himself, First of all, one never knew what language he was conversing with himself, inside himself, even while he was sitting and speaking English, because he had many languages, German, Yiddish, and Hebrew, namely, although he spoke fluently in many other languages as well. But daily, I think, he spoke to himself in German, in Yiddish, and in Hebrew. And he didn't, and he, and he didn't really feel completely at home. Ever since being chased away from Vienna or fleeing Vienna, he was aware of that. People don't forget the refugees among us, and we always have refugees among us. It's not like moving. It's not like, well, now a little bit of time has gone by and now everything is okay. When you're a refugee, it never goes away that you were chased, 
that you had to flee, that your life was in danger, that the people around you wanted to kill you, that never goes away. And yeah, it never went away for Theo. So he was at home in the world. He was very at home in the world. But he never forgot that he had been a refugee and that he lived where he lived because he was not allowed to live where he was born and where he came from. Do you and he share that marvelous disposition that in the friends it's Je suis un citoyen de la monde. Do you feel that you are citizens of the world? I think because both of us moved around so much, yes, we both have shared. We both share. We now stand as obviously a citizen of the universe. So we're not in the same place anymore. He's gone on. Um, so it's funny to talk about it in the present moment. But, you know, the truth is I feel like a citizen of the universe as well. Sure, let's go for that. I feel not only a citizen of the world. I definitely feel a citizen of the universe, of the multiverse. You know, I, 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 I feel myself to be here. And when I say here, I mean that in a really very, very broad way. Allow me to share a little bit of borrowed starlight from you. It's appreciated. <laughs> He never seemed to despair, and yet judging the world today, we certainly have reason for despair. The book carries a lesson, carries a message, carries an impetus, carries an embrace. Do you share in that optimism? Many that I know, perhaps myself included, we're all human, we find ourselves challenged, and we seek love and retribution and whatever, those basic emotions in our daily travail, he seemed to just be able to float on that cloud overlooking everything. What do you attribute his feeling that it is what it is and it will be better in time? First of all, Theo was no Buddhist. So, you know, <laughs> I maybe sound, you know, I have my whole, we, we did not necessarily share in our spiritual sensibilities, although in the last year of his life, Theo became more Buddha-like every day. So, but... He, he did not necessarily float on a cloud. He did not float on a cloud. And many a night, many a night, I would find Theo awake in front of his computer reading some new terrible news out of somewhere and weeping away and, um, or, or listening to Bertolt Brecht, you know, and, and, and weeping away. Um, and uh, he felt um, sometimes very fearful for the world. And sometimes he felt moments of despair where he would say, you know, a lifetime of work, a lifetime of activism, of tireless activism, day in, day out, decades of it, a lifetime of it. And there's nothing to show. But those were moments of despair from which he always came back. And um, like I say in the book, often it took uh, just picking up his guitar and, 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 and playing and singing a song to come back to his uh, more natural state of hopefulness and happiness. Now, that said, I want to go back and say that you said uh, there's so many reasons for despair. I would want to say, and I think Theo would say as well, there are never reasons for despair. There is no reason for despair. Um, we despair sometimes. And we're human and, 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 and we get tired or we get hit with a traumatic event, which is beyond our ability to cope with for some amount of time. And during that time, we definitely might despair. But then there's someone else to pick up the torch and to do the work. The world is, um, 
uh, always um, uh, better in many ways. Um, there's always things about the world that pain us, give us terrible uh, sadness and uh, anger about uh, almost always uh, about seeing how other people are treated or how the environment is treated or how animals are treated, which, by the way, proves how good we are in our heart, that we despair about such matters, that we care enough to despair. But um, work, when we work on these things, they get better. And if there's a, a setback, they are often temporary. Um, and then there's new uh, terrible things come up, and we deal with those as well. And uh, there's never reason for despair. And if we don't have energy in a certain moment to tackle something, we can rest and self-care for a while until we have the energy again. Uh, but it is upon us to do this work, um, never to despair. And um, I, I want to make sure I have enough time to tell this story, and so I'm just going to say it right now. I don't know um, if you were planning on asking me about the concert in Vienna uh, later in the interview, but I'm afraid that we'll run out of time. So Please if you don't mind, because it, it most certainly okay. Yeah, this certainly goes to your question about um, is the world getting better? Is there reason for despair? Um, so as I talk about in the book, and I talk about everywhere I go, because I've taken a vow to speak about this always um, to, uh, to people that I speak to. Um, so as we know, Theo had to leave uh, in 38, um, and 75 years later, on November 9th, it was the 75-year anniversary of Kristallnacht, that night I mentioned earlier, when the houses of worship, Jewish businesses were all smashed, and the um, laws of purity uh, uh, were were passed in full force, and what we call the Holocaust, that, that phase began. Um, and uh, 75 years later, the Austrian government, um, the head of the Austrian parliament, uh, the president of the Austrian parliament, a marvelous woman named Barbara Kramer, may she rest in peace, invited Theo to come um, to Vienna, to the Austrian parliament, to give a concert in the actual parliament hall, so not a side room where they do you know, meetings, not a banquet hall, the actual you know, floor of the parliament. And he and his very dear friend, Miramar Cluso, who was his accompanist uh, on her gorgeous accordion, they sat in front of the highest elected officials of the land and many dignitaries, including the prime minister, the vice prime minister, the Vice Chancellor of Austria, the President of the Parliament, the, the Secretary of Defense, the Chief of Staff of the Army, and so on and so on. I, the list really does go on. Ambassadors and parliamentarians, elected officials. And he said to them, I want to thank you for honoring my people in this way of inviting me here on this very solemn and momentous occasion. The significance of this is not lost on me, that the mass murderers are gone, and I'm the one here singing my, or I'm still here, singing my song and my people's songs of peace and freedom. And then he told them, and this was all, of course, in German, which was Theo's mother tongue. He told them of being a child in the beautiful city that was all light, with intellectuals debating and beautiful display cases of cakes and theaters and concert halls where he thought he would grow up and take his place someday, and of the horror of becoming a refugee in one way or another for the rest of his life. 
And then he started with the song Kinder Yorin, which means childhood years in Yiddish. And he sang them that song in Yiddish. And then he regaled them in French, German, Yiddish, Hebrew, and English. And from the back of the hall, I watched the people who had originally been quite tense for an occasion which they had thought would be very dour somehow, a Jewish person standing in front of them, you know, maybe lecturing them, maybe shaming them, maybe, you know, talking about the ways in which he hoped they felt guilty. And you saw them relax and start to enjoy the music and enjoy Theo's loving joy. And the room was bathed in something which to me felt holy, holier than I can say, like the room ascended somewhere And we were not just a regular room on a regular address in the center of Vienna, but we were in a moment of humanity, of what it looks like when when we come together in this way. And when the concert was almost over, Theo said to everyone, this song must be listened to only standing, so please stand up. And they all stood more or less at attention. And he sang to them in Yiddish, the survivor song of the Vilna partisans and the song that we sing on Holocaust Memorial Days that reminds us of the, of the, of the, um, of the victims and of the survivors. And he sang them that song in Yiddish. And that's what happened in the Austrian parliament on the 75 years after the Anschluss, after the Nazi rise in Austria. That's what happened. And not, God forbid, you know, a joyous celebration of 75 years of the, of the Third Reich, which it could have been. A horrible thought. A horrible thought. So we're not guaranteed that we won, but we did. And may, we often do. May I ask it a favor of you? Yes. We've reached the end of our allotted time, but at your discretion, would you care to return and speak simply Any at length? Oh, that is marvelous. I'd love to... Dis- Anytime at all. It was wonderful talking to you. I hope that your audience not only enjoyed the conversation, but will go out and read, buy and read The City of Light. It's called Theodore Bikel's The City of Light. And uh, bring it home to your children, grandchildren, friends. I think that you'll feel um, moved by it because Theo's spirit runs all the way through it. And Theo's spirit was very a moving spirit. I'll take a quiet moment tonight and think of you both. This has been Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Robert.